According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good to have you here. Welcome. I know we're a little bit chaos here today with the business meeting, but we appreciate we uh, let out from that just in the nick of time, and now we're ready to to stop thinking in terms of business and finances and just get back to the Word of God, systematic theology, and all this good stuff. I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get right into uh, chapter 27 on inerrancy. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. Thank you for our annual business meeting and what we just concluded, and for faithful servants that continue to be faithful. And Father, I just give you the praise and the glory. So, Father, set aside now this time and bless it and and, uh, teach us what we need to learn. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Inerrancy, one of my favorite topics in the entire universe. So, I mean, we could could spend hours on this chapter, and I would just love it if we were here at midnight or 3 a.m. or something. Although I'd be asleep because I fall asleep by 10 p.m. most nights. So... Uh, but we are, did you do the reading? Did you read chapter 27? Yes, yes, this is the honesty hand. Okay, yes, okay. Did you not do the reading? This is the other honesty hand. No, no, okay. And then some of you don't have any hands for honesty or, or dishonesty, so we'll just have to leave that up in the air. What's that? Oh, it is grace. Yeah, it's a grace ministry. All right. Well, let's uh, get a start then, and we, we want to run through it. This is Inerrancy, Chapter 27. Uh, next week, we'll do Chapter 28. The week after that, Chapter 29, and then we're done. We're done with Volume 1. We will have covered both halves of Volume 1, the Prolegomena and the bibliography, uh, Bibliology, so we're thankful for that. Uh, I'm still working on my plans, lesson plans, and, and curriculum material for the dispensational course I want to do. Um, Josiah was asking, you know, what textbooks am I going to use or what kind of reading you're going to have to do? Are there going to be quizzes? And I uh, have not worked any of those details out yet. Uh, one thing I do want to do, though, I kind of want to make it more of a workshop, more of an interactive, more of a of a back and forth. Um, so I may actually do a lot with this Microsoft whiteboard and just drawing freehand and getting input and and allowing us to think out loud while we're drawing our charts and diagrams, okay? Because remember, as dispensationalists, we have the best charts and diagrams in the entire church age, okay? And so we'll we'll have some fun with this. That's it. We can spread it out. We can walk down the hallway over here. So um, just pray for that because I know I want to use Larkin. I want to use Walver or Ryrie. I want to use... Um, especially uh, with James M. Gray. I want to do... Anyway, well, we'll get to some of that as we get closer. So, um, I bet. Talk to me after class. Uh, they had a display up until 2017, and it is now gone. It's heartbreaking that we could have gone to Philadelphia as recently as 2017 and seen that seen that wall display. All right, so tonight is uh, Inerrancy. Okay, and then two more chapters to go after that. So that gets us through February the 11th, and then, um, yeah, I, I expect to do the rest of February and March with dispensations, and so possibly then we'll start Volume 2 uh, perhaps in April. So uh, we'll get that uh, charted out as well. Inerrancy. What are we dealing with inerrancy? What is inerrancy? What does it mean? Cannot err. Er, 
Er, er, okay. Um, and it is a logical conclusion, okay, uh, based upon the fact that the Bible is the Word of God and God cannot err. Right? God is perfect in, in His character and His essence and all that He does. Not only does He do everything perfect, but He does it in a perfect way, for perfect reasons, with perfect timing. So everything uh, in, with God is perfection, and that includes His Word. And so this is the syllogism that we develop to, uh, to come to this conclusion. Now, uh, some of these other expressions. Inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy. Some people think they're all synonyms. They're actually not. They're, they're interrelated, and we can find some overlap and some concepts, but it's, it's best to keep them separate. Inspiration with God breathed and how he uh, mechanized the, or how he worked through human authors in order to have both a God and human origin for the Bible. Uh, that's what we refer to with respect to inspiration, holy men of old that were moved along by the Holy Spirit that uh, spoke the words of God. Um, infallibility and and um, inerrancy. Sometimes I think these get um, confused or they get uh, exchanged. Okay, so inspiration means breathed out by God, and our classic verse for that is Second Timothy three sixteen. Infallibility means what has divine authority, what cannot be broken, right? And Scripture cannot be broken. And if it's something He promised, it's infallible. It will be fulfilled in the way that He intended for it to be fulfilled, not necessarily in the way we think it has to be fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled in the way that he, int- that he intends to fulfill what he has promised to do and uh, what cannot be broken. And then inerrancy means that which is without error, that which is wholly true. And the Bible is wholly true, but here, again, we do have some fine points. We have some discussion that can be made. I had a lady that emailed me the other day about this. Um, if we say that there's that everything in this book is true from Genesis to Revelation, what do we do about the lies that are contained in this book? All right, because Satan uttered several lies. I will be like the Most High God, right? He had several lies. We have human lies. We have other false statements. Ananias and Sapphira, they lied, and and their lies are recorded in the Scripture. So, um, as long as we're clear that uh, those lies were truthfully recorded. Uh, accurately recorded, truthfully recorded by the Holy Spirit, then, you know, we're fine. That, and even the lies in the Bible are truthfully recorded. And so uh, that might be a bit of a fine point that some people may or may not care about. What is inspired is infallible, since inspired means breathed out by God. What is God breathed cannot be in error. Likewise, what is infallible, since it has divine authority, must also be inerrant. A divinely authoritative error is a contradiction in terms. However, not everything inerrant is divinely authoritative. And I thought this was interesting. A phone book could be without error. In fact, humans can produce inerrant material, usually on their 55th draft or their 80th draft, or with several proofreaders and editors. You know, it's possible to come up with something that's inerrant on a human level, uh, but that does not mean it's, it's infallible, and that does not mean that it's inspired. So I think that was worth uh, pointing out, and I'm glad that he did so. But essentially, it's a two-point syllogism. Uh, the Bible is the Word of God. God cannot err. So, uh, any questions? Okay. Easy chapter. We're done. All right? Okay. Not quite. Um, actually, 
like I say, this is, this is a great chapter for me. I love this stuff. I eat it up. I would recommend additional readings beyond this chapter. While this chapter is good as far as it goes, it's a very short version, and there are longer versions with more comprehensive detail that I can recommend also, including more by Geisler. One of the first books I ever owned in my pastoral library was Biblical Inerrancy by, by Geisler, along with a general introduction to the Bible that was a uh, tandem of Geisler and Nick's. Uh, that uh, they put that out. And again, some of these are some of the earliest books I ever had in my library as a, as a seminary student back in the day. The Bible is the Word of God. As we said earlier, if the Bible says it, God says it, right? That's, uh, that's, we accept that. Okay? The, the liberals don't. They, uh, they have a, a very low view of Scripture whereby they may admit grudgingly that the Bible contains God's Word but they wouldn't say the Bible is God's Word. And then they start picking and choosing the parts they like and don't like, and, and they, they become the arbiter of what they think is the, is the Word of God. And we're not, uh, we're not allowed to do that because we're not his fellow editors or co-editors. Uh, we are in subjection to his Word. So uh, we can define it this way. I mean, you can discern the definition here uh, with, with all five of these affirmations. It is God-breathed. Uh, it is prophetic writing. I can't stress that enough because one of the biggest obstacles the liberals have is the, the prophetic nature of the Bible. And they, they will deny the miraculous. They will deny the prophetic. They will insist that things that appear to be prophecies were written after the fact. That's why I like a Maccabean date for Daniel and things like that. Um, anyway, it is God-breathed. It is a prophetic writing. And, and also, it's, it's important to realize, I think we, we, we lose out being church-age believers, being 20th, 21st century Christians. Uh, but because we have quite a bit in our Bible that's already past, completed, fulfilled, right? The virgin conceived and bore a son, done, history passed. Uh, writing humbly on a colt, done, history passed. So we have so much fulfilled scripture with the first advent of Jesus Christ that we overlook the fact that when those prophecies were first given, they were still unfulfilled. They were still prophetic at the time they were given. And so when you track how much, how much of the Bible on a percentage basis was prophetic on the day it was given, that's a huge number compared to what remains as yet to be fulfilled from our standpoint here in uh, 2024. Is that right? 2024. Okay, I got the right year. Just checking. Okay. So, um, prophetic writing. It has divine authority. What, God, what it says, God says. Uh, what it, that it is called the Word of God or the like. I mean, this is what it is. It's the Word of God. So, thus saith the Lord. And anytime you're reading a scripture, you can add, thus saith the Lord in front of it, because it's coming from God himself. This is God's Word. Uh, of course, 2 Timothy 2, uh, 3.16, the, the, uh, the noun theopneustos, which I love, uh, probably coined by the Apostle Paul himself, based on, we, we don't find it in, in secular sources or, or prior to Paul. Um, Anyway, it's, uh, it's what it's about. God breathe. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4.4. 4. Likewise, the nature of a prophet. Not just predicting future, but as a spokesman. Not just foretelling, but forthtelling, some people might say. Speaking only what God put in their mouths. Which is why the false prophets were so rebuked. Because they stand and they say, Thus saith the Lord, and the Lord's up in heaven saying, I didn't say that. Right? You're speaking from yourself. You're speaking from your own imaginations. And uh, you are magnifying yourself above God. 
that the Bible is the Word of God can also be determined from the fact that it has divine authority. Jesus said it was exalted above all human authority. And, and it comes down to that. And, and so we, we encounter this from time to time because uh, we're having a, a, uh, a heated conversation of a somewhat adversarial nature. And, uh, and we, we, uh, we quote a scripture. We say, boom, we, like it's a mic drop moment. But they picked up the mic because they don't think it's a mic drop moment. Our opponent in this conversation does not have the same regard for the scripture. And so you and I, if, if the Bible says it, okay, right? Uh, one, one touchy item is the idea of First Timothy that says uh, a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. And this is why we don't have women pastors. And our church constitution uh, very clearly says that, the, that there's no such thing as a woman pastor, that the pastor of the church will be a man. Well, you know, we can point to scripture that says this, this, and this. The other side doesn't care. Okay, because again, it's a low view of Scripture, and it's really a fallible view that says that that's, that was then, and it needs to be updated, and they don't have the regard that the Bible has for itself. That's another thing. Every view we have of the Scripture is what the, the Bible says concerning itself. The Bible says concerning itself that it's God-breathed and inspired. It says concerning itself that it cannot be broken. It says concerning itself that it's true. So um, we, uh, our views are not just our views and up for debate because our views are the views of the Bible itself. It is what God says. And these are all worth looking at. I feel like much of this chapter was repeated from earlier material. Did you notice that? And so a lot of this material here is indeed, you will find this in other places. But Galatians 3.8, Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Was it Scripture saying that, or was it God saying that? You know, when you read in Genesis 12, it seems like God is saying that. And He is. But now it's in the Scriptures, and so now not only is God saying that, Scripture is saying that. What God says, or what the Bible says, God says. Likewise, Exodus 9.16. And here's God speaking, but Romans 9, Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up. So, did God say it or does Scripture say it? Both. God said it in the day, but then it was canonized in the Scripture. So now God says it and Scripture says it, and they're both true. Yeah, chapter 13, the origin and inspiration of the Bible. So, yeah, this is a chapter on, um, in, on inerrancy, and much of this material has already been given in chapter 13 when we dealt with inspiration. It is called the Word of God. This is the great advantage that Israel has. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. And uh, so many uh, scriptures that speak to uh, the Lord sending this word, putting it in the mouth of his prophets, and, uh, and the issues there. Okay? And you think, well, what a no-brainer. How simple is this? Because this is what the Bible claims to be. And tragically, and I, and I think... Christians never doubted that, right up until the German liberals of the 19th century. Then there started to come different views about, well, here's what the Bible really is. Okay? You had, they had oral tradition for centuries that took time to eventually find its way into a written form. And it, it found its way into written form by men that wanted to stay in power. And so it was all, I mean, it's a mythology of what the Bible is. And it's, it's just so ludicrous, but the sadness is it's accepted as if it's factual. 
because they make claims about the Bible that the Bible never makes about itself and were never even thought of until these uh, uh, liberals came up with these theories. Okay. Anyway, it is the Word of God, and God cannot err. Again, Scripture tells us again and again and again, has, has God ever made any mistake? Never. And even in the couple of passages where, we, where God records his own uh, lament, his own regret, you know, his own, like at the flood or, or making Saul king, he says, I regret that I made Saul king. Uh, those aren't, that's not God admitting any kind of a mistake. You can regret all kinds of things that were not mistakes in the first place, right? Simply because you observe the consequences and the harm and the things that have come out of that, even if it was the right thing, you still can regret the right things based upon how they turned out in later consequence. And that's very true for us. It's very true for God. So, um, everything he does is true. Everything he does is perfect. He is the ultimate moral lawgiver. He is the basis for absolute moral law. That was an element we brought about when in theories of, of proving God's existence. The argumentation for the existence of God as the reality of moral laws uh, point to a moral law giver. The argument of God's truthfulness, again, time and time again, Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to lie. Titus 1.2, the God who does not lie. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Um, your word is truth. John seventeen seventeen. All your words are true. Psalm 119 and verse 160. Romans 3, 4. May God be found true, though every man a liar. It's a very popular verse in my heart when uh, political season comes around and there's an election going on and you, you're watching campaign ads and wondering, jeepers, who are these people? And because there's so many lies that come out in the campaign ads. Well, let God be found true, though every man a liar. So since God is faithful and true, since he cannot err, he cannot lie, it follows that the Bible cannot err. And uh, if you're going to deny that, then you've got to deny any of the, the premises that lead to that logical conclusion. One of them or both of them. You also need to have the basic definition of truth, okay? The correspondence value of truth. Truth is that which conforms to reality. Let's, let's all cheer being uh, in the world of reality, okay? Truth is not what works. Truth is not what's popular. Truth is not what we want it to be. Truth is not relative, okay? Your truth is not different from my truth. There is the truth, the objective reality of truth in this universe, and we either conform to it or we face the consequences. So, um, by the way, if that's not true, if there is no absolute standard of truth, then what are we really saying? What is the Bible? Who are we? And uh, in order to deny it, you have to make an absolute statement when you say there are no absolutes or there is no such thing as truth. Well, wait a minute. You're making a truth-based statement that claims that there is no such thing as truth. So, it's impossible to defeat just logically. No, whatever the Bible says is true is true. Whatever the Bible says is false is false. If the Bible says it's true, then that's what we're going with. Uh, if Jesus affirms it, I'm good with that. Okay, because Jesus died on the cross and purchased my eternal life, and uh, I owe everything to Him. So, uh, if Jesus said uh, that the flood covered the entire world, I'm going to go with that. If some smarty pants uh, scientist out there says no, it's a local flood, wait a minute, what are we doing? Okay, truth is truth. 
And the one who knows testified to it, because he was there. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. And he is the I am. And we can, we can accept his testimony to Genesis, his testimony to all of Scripture. I have no issue with that. The Bible has zero errors. Do you believe that? I do too. No errors of any kind. There are supposed errors. There are problem passages. There are any number of issues that critics will point to. And that's fine. Feel free. Point to whatever you want to point to. We don't hide anything. But if you're going to point to something, then you need to accept the rational explanation for why that error is not an error. And, uh, and then as we gradually answer all 800,000 objections you have, um, we will be very patiently waiting for you to admit that uh, the Bible has no errors. And if, you, uh, if you're not content with the 800,000 answers and you come up with number 800,001, then we will very patiently uh, refute that one also. Okay? Uh, because there's nothing we're afraid of. There's no, uh, and we're not terrified that archaeology is going to turn up a, a, a text somehow that's going to prove everything we have wrong. Okay? Even though the, the media is going to go wild. You know, Time Magazine got all scary a while back because they thought about, the, they found out about this uh, Gospel of Judas. <gasps> Did you hear about the Gospel of Judas? You know, as if this was shocking and, and Christians are going to be speechless and like, oh, we never heard of that. And like, hello, you're about 2,000 years too late. We've known about it for ages. We've, you know, we can deal with that. And uh, we're not scared of that anymore than we're scared of Bell and the Dragon or anything else you want to point us to. Um, but we will, affirm, we will affirm this. The Bible has no errors of any kind. And even when we can find that some of the manuscript copies have questionable um, issues, right, that there were errors of copying, that doesn't mean that the autographs had errors as written. And that's, uh, that is an affirmation we do make. Um, and it's just so artificial, too. Some people try to separate out Spiritual claims versus earthly claims, uh, redemptive truths versus historical truths, uh, as if we can be comfortable accepting errors in in some biblical passages just because they're not salvific. And wait a minute, no, we accept all of it as God-breathed and inspired, not just the parts that you're trying to claim. And besides, Geisler does a great job in this section showing that even the salvific passages are still grounded in historical realities. So Christ died for our sins as redemptive, but the same passage says he was buried, rose again on the third day, which are historical. Anyway, he does some, uh, some, some good work in this paragraph as well. Here's some theological definitions. This is from B.B. Warfield. And, and several folks have done this. In fact, recently, one of the most recent ones um, I've been intrigued by is Michael Heiser was doing some definition work on inerrancy and inspiration. Uh, and, and Heiser is, is a brilliant, he's with the Lord now, but he did some brilliant work and uh, he's not dispensational, which I think damages a lot of what he does. But still, I was intrigued by some of the elements he was including in his doctrine of inerrancy and his doctrine of inspiration. So uh, I'll be curious to see if any of that gains any ground in the coming years. A lot of times, uh, theological writers get more popular after they're dead. <laughs> and so maybe some of uh, Heiser's stuff will start gaining more uh, acceptance now that he's with the Lord. But here's B.B. Warfield. Inspiration is the supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Holy Spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. All right, that's not bad. 
Um, but it is a supernatural influence because God the Holy Spirit is the one working. He's breathing and he's working. And in his breathing, they are carried along. Holy men of old were carried along, moved by the Holy Spirit of God. So by virtue of which, that divine action, that supernatural influence, their writings are given divine trustworthiness. That's, that's what allows humans to produce the uh, inerrant, infallible, perfect Word of God. There's a fuller definition here by Gossin. That inexplicable power... Stop. You're explaining it in this paragraph. So, if you're explaining it in this paragraph, don't call it inexplicable. But, okay. That inexplicable power which the divine spirit put forth of old on the authors of the Holy Scripture in order to give them guidance even in the employment of the words they used and to preserve them alike from all error and from all omission. All right. I can go with that. That's fuller. That's interesting. Uh, what is it that has to be included in any definition? And Geisler says these six items must be the crucial. You have to include them. And, uh, and I think we can even expand it a little bit more. Uh, but this is how Geisler broke it down. Six crucial elements. If you leave one of them out, you are kind of got a lacking in your uh, deficiency and in your inerrancy definition. But first of all, it's divine origin. It was from God, obviously. If you're not including God as the source of inerrancy, then uh, you've got a problem there. It's human agency that is through men. Okay? You've got to accept that, too. Um, you've got to involve the human personalities and writing styles and intellect and everything else. And, and God didn't just shut down their brains and work through uh, mindless puppets when he was putting uh, quill to parchment. It's written locus that he did so in writing. That's significant. He put it in writing. And so the canonical books, like canonical Genesis, may not have been the original Genesis. And that's something else that I think is part of this refining that we should at least talk about, if not uh, come to a conclusive uh, issue here today. It's written locus in words. It's original form in the autographs or the original text. It's final authority as normative for all believers, and then its inerrant nature without errors. I think those are good. Um, I would also, as a part of that human agency, add, in addition to the initial authors, I would also add the subsequent editors, the subsequent compilers, the subsequent arrangers, the subsequent canonizers. All right? Because they also are involved in the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. Right? David did not write 150 psalms in that order. Somebody put those psalms in that order. And I believe they did so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That inspiration included the arrangement of the material, the canonization of the material. The original form and the final authority. So, if some of the original manuscripts mentioned uh, a town, and then later on, copies of those manuscripts updated the name of that town, we're fine with that. And so that by the time of Ezra, when the Pentateuch, when all the Old Testament is canonized, is it conceivable that canonical um, Exodus mentions a town called Ramses that may have had a different name in the Mosaic era? That the Mosaic Pentateuch may have had the older name 
that later got updated by later scribes and editors. Are we clear on that? I mean, that's very observable through many uh, Old Testament books. It's very observable through many um, of our books in the Bible. Some of that's beyond the, the depths of this chapter, but I, I want you to be thinking about them or just be aware of them as discussions because uh, I think that they are useful. Here's a, his suggested definition, combining all these elements into one definition. And I didn't count the words on that, but he's got quite a few. The inspiration of Scripture is the supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit who, through the different personalities and literary styles of the chosen human authors, invested the very words of the original books of the Holy Scripture alone and in their entirety as the very Word of God without error in all that they teach, including history and science, and is thereby the infallible rule and final authority for the faith and practice of all believers. And that's his definition. For the faith and practice of all believers. And at one point, ten years ago, I made a comment there and I I wanted to expand upon that. I actually wanted to improve upon that. Um, but ten years later, I changed my mind. So I'm going to delete that note. All right. I'm okay now with the phrase faith and practice. Okay? So for our faith and our practice, what we're learning, how we're living, it comes from the Scriptures. And there is no authority higher than the Scriptures. In fact, it's worthwhile to ask, is there any authority beyond the Scriptures, even a lower authority? beyond the Scriptures, for matters of faith and practice. Okay? Because the Roman Church and other traditions say, oh, yeah, yeah, we have other authorities besides the Scripture. As long as we have them lower than Scripture, we're, we're cool, right? Well, wait a minute. All right, validate that for a moment. I want to hear. How did, the Holy, how did, how did this non-biblical uh, text or tradition or practice or, or anything, whatever you're telling me, if it's non-biblical, how did it become authoritative for faith and practice? And I don't think you can find anything beyond the Scripture itself. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong. But to me, that's the sola in, uh, that's the scriptura in sola scriptura. That means we don't accept church councils. We don't accept uh, church traditions. We don't accept the, uh, the verbal opinions of, of pastors. It's, it's from the Scripture as the sole authority of uh, faith and practice for our Christian walk. Now, to the extent, how far do we push this? It is inherent in every way, on every matter, or only in terms of theology and ethics. Well, clearly, it's everything. It's all Scripture. Um, some have suggested Scripture can always be trusted on moral matters, but it's not always correct on historical matters. They rely on it in the spiritual domain, but not on the sphere of science. So, I mean, the moral teachings, you want to be a good person, basically, golden rule and a couple other things. And then, but then, they want, because the reason they do that is there's parts of the Bible they don't like. And so they want to ignore it, they want to rewrite it, they want to recast it in their image. And so you start picking and choosing what's authoritative and what's not. And really, all you're saying is you're authoritative and you make the Bible say what you want it to say. Is that fair? Am I being unfair? Am I... Sometimes I can overgeneralize. I can paint with a broad brush and maybe uh, inappropriately tag some people with certain things. Anyway, nope, the whole Bible is uh, all Scripture is God-breathed. And uh, the scientific, spiritual truths are often inseparable. He's already given several examples here. He gives a few more about the resurrection. 
and um, separating the spiritual truth of Christ's resurrection from the fact that his body permanently vacated the tomb. I mean, really? The, the historical reality of the resurrection from the theological value of the resurrection? If, if the one didn't happen, why do I think the other had any basis, right? There is no theological significance if it didn't actually happen. That's, that's fundamentally true. The Bible is a historical faith. It's grounded in the historicity of Adam and Eve, the historicity of Jesus Christ, the historicity of his death and resurrection. If those events did not happen, we're not saved, and our Bible is, is, is not true. So, Adam's original sin, Romans 5, absolutely necessary, the death of our Savior, the, uh, the satisfactory payment, the, all of these things. The incarnation, the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that God became a man without stopping being God. Hypostatic union and incarnation are both fundamental. His moral teaching about marriage was based on his teaching about God joining together a literal Adam and Eve. So you don't even have moral merit, marital principles without the historical reality of Adam and Eve in Genesis. Moral and theological teaching is devoid of its meaning apart from the historical or factual event. If you deny the literal space-time event occurred, there's no basis for believing the scriptural doctrine built upon it. Amen. All right, you have a question? You got the microphone ready? Okay, well, while you fetch the microphone, I'm going to color this green because I like this a lot. And I want this green for the next time I teach this. If one denies that the literal space-time event occurred, then there is no basis for believing the scriptural doctrine built upon it. It's just nonsensical to, uh, to try to make an affirmation like that. All right, what's your question? Okay, do, do, do you think um, every moral concept in the Bible has a historical event that is tied to it, or is that just a couple of events in the Bible? And is there a reason for that? Is there like a deeper reason if, if, if that is true? Kind of a two-part question there. Maybe. Is that a fair enough answer? Yeah. I mean, every moral... Okay, so... I mean, the ones we had already with, with, with the resurrection of Jesus, okay, marriage, those, those are the two that, that we just went through, but... I'm trying to think, just picking another moral issue. Do, do we need the Sodom and Gomorrah story to teach the immorality of homosexuality? Is that, is it kind of, is that what you're getting at? If, if, if Sodom and Gomorrah did not really happen, then homosexuality is not immoral? No, 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 that's not what I'm okay. saying. All right. I'm saying, does the Bible have a historical example for uh, different moral concepts like consistently? Or is it just on a couple of issues like the death, resurrection? Yeah, I'd say they're not hard to find. I'd say you can, you can find examples on a whole lot of things. And then my follow-up question is, is there a reason why God did that? Is he trying to show us why these things happen the way they happen? By giving us real stories with real people? Maybe. That's a why question. We, we don't always have answers to why questions. But, but really, storytelling is a powerful mode of communication. And it resonates and it's, it's remembered a long, long time. And so... That's a, there, there's a value to storytelling in the Bible. All right, we got Josiah, we got Mark over here too. I was wondering, uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, uh, a little bit earlier, that uh, places of, like names of places being uh, updated or something uh -huh. like that. And I was talking with Glenn about this earlier that uh, we say like Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldees, but the term Chaldean. Wasn't even it wasn't around at the time Abraham wasn't even around at the time of Moses. It's something from like 
the time of of Daniel. So, I guess, how often does has that happened in like the Hebrew text? I think we can find a number of cases, and not only were the, the names were updated, but sometimes the name was preserved, but the spelling was updated. We would have different spellings based upon different eras of the text. Um, and then sometimes, uh, and then there was a significant changeover when the text went from the Proto-Canitic text to the uh, Aramaic block letters, so there was a, a transition there from the text, because Moses didn't employ the Aramaic block letters that we study today when we're studying Biblical Hebrew. So um, th- those kind of editorial changes are, are very normal in, uh, in the manuscripts. And they can be observed in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They can be observed in, in other uh, places as well. Okay. Like you can, you can observe like an earlier version of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls or something like that? Yes. Okay. And, and you can find earlier uh, characters. And we were talking about Codex Sinaiticus the other night and the fact that uh, when you look at that Greek manuscript, your uh, capital sigmas uh, don't look like the sigmas we're accustomed to seeing. They're not the, 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 the sigma-shaped sigma, but they actually just look like big old C's, letter C's. And, uh, and that's because even the alphabet itself had, went through stages of, of usage, stages of development. And that helps you, too, to identify what century you're looking at when you're looking at a particular manuscript. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. Um. So, um, if one denies that the literal space-time event occurs, I'm a liberal, I don't deny that it happened, a literal space-time occurred, but I have a basis in the sense that it presents a good moral position. But I do not deny (laughs) that it could Uh have a literal space. I just don't say one way or the other. I'm saying... I don't deny it. Uh-huh. I just say there's no... I don't have to believe that it occurred in order for there to be a basis on believing scriptural doctrine built on it. Okay. Well, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're comfortable with that, if you're comfortable uh, being an agnostic and leaving it as an open question as to whether there was an empty tomb and Jesus rose from the dead, or if you're comfortable uh, whether Adam and Eve were real people or not, you know, or if it was some other evolved monkey and another evolved monkey over here and whatever. Um, but that's a, that's a standard of proof that I wouldn't be comfortable with. I, I'm curious as to why some folks are, are just as loosey-goosey with that. But I hear what you're saying. That's probably pretty common in, uh, in that. It, it, I, I know it's going to come up in stereology uh-huh. that there's some things that you... It's going to come up... Read the book, mm-hmm. and so it's like, even though the thief on the cross may not realize that Jesus is God, he doesn't deny that Jesus is God. So there's some things where is the denial and the not knowing uh-huh. two different things. Oh yeah, totally. Okay, so that's all I'm saying here. Okay, is yeah. The denying of a little time space is, is one thing, but the saying that. I just don't know. Right. Something different. Sure. I'll accept that. All right, we got Reuben with a question, and then Jeremiah. Uh, so what, how would you describe the difference, then, between maybe what, uh, what Jeremiah's gentlemen are talking about with uh, an allegory that Jesus told, where we derive uh, a moral principle, but not from 
something that actually took place. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's huge differences between an allegory, a parable, something, you know, was the prodigal son real or was that a, a parable that Jesus was teaching? And, and I think it's good that we have that variety in Scripture so that we don't try to allegorize the things that are literal and we, uh, and we can handle the, the actual parables on, on that basis. All right. So I guess, and I'm sorry, allegory or parable, um, I guess what I'm saying is, if, if, if that didn't occur, is there still a basis from which to draw a moral principle? Right, kind of to what they're saying. I, I, I believe there is. Oh, yeah. yeah but yeah. but well, how, how do you make the distinction between that and saying, how do you draw a moral principle from the resurrection if you don't believe it happened? Oh, 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 okay. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So, because I, I would say, for me, the difference is, the Bible is not presenting the resurrection as if it is a parable or as if it is an allegory. The Bible is presenting it as a historical fact. And because it's presenting itself as a historical fact, it either is a historical fact or the Bible is deceptive in the way that it's presenting it as a historical fact. And so I would reject that the Bible is deceptive in, in such things. Yeah. All right. So I have two things. Can I get a little bit more clarification on what he was talking about? And the second question is, it's a Greek question. I was looking, so I have a replica of the papyrus number 52, and I did notice, like what you were saying, the Greek letters look different. They uh -huh. changed, didn't they? Just like our English letters kind of changed over uh -huh. time a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. You ever read the Declaration of Independence <laughs> in Congress Assembled? You know, they used to use Fs for the final S. That's why in Congress it's really Congress, but it looks like FF at the end of the word, okay? It's not FF, right? Or ye old curiosity shop. The, the ye old, O-L-D-E, but the ye isn't really a ye. It's a T-H sound that was made by a, a Y um, ligature mark. So it's really the old curiosity shop, but it looks like ye old. So, yeah, that changes. It changes constantly. All languages do. All languages have alphabet ortho orthographical changes. Wow. Yep. So, all right, well, let's get back to this, or we'll run out of time. Go away. All right. Jesus often directly compared Old Testament events with important spiritual truths. And, um, you know, he taught Jonah and the, and the fish as a literal historical event. So either he was a liar or he was, uh, you know, trying to make a moral story out of a fiction. But he didn't present it as a fiction. He presented it as a historical event. All right. Inspiration includes not only all that the Bible explicitly teaches, but also everything the Bible touches. And that can be a, that's a step away. That's, a, that's an additional refinement. I think it's worthwhile. Whatever the Bible declares is true, whether it is a major point or a minor point, the Bible is God's word, and God does not deviate from truth at any place in it. All the parts are as true as they wholly comprise, as the whole they comprise. All right. Then there will be some objections, and I think he does a good job uh, answering each of these. Objection that it's not taught in the Bible. I, I think it is actually implicitly taught in the Bible because of the, the doctrine of inspiration and the things that we can find there. But even if you admit that it's not, it's just no different than Trinity or Rapture or the words that are in the Bible. Because, uh, okay, inerrancy is not in the Bible, but the principles are, are clearly there. It may not be formally and explicitly taught, 
That doesn't mean that it's not logically and implicitly taught. I think it is. Same thing with Trinity. Same thing with pre-tribulational rapturism. Okay? You can say the rapture is explicit, but the pre-tribulational timing of it, that requires more work. That requires more comparing Scripture with Scripture and coming to uh, conclusions and, and coming to these, uh, these things in the proper way. And I would agree with that. Is it a late invention? I wouldn't say so. Um, and Geisler, I think, does a good job with that. I mean, as early as Augustine, you got testimony that, uh, that addresses these things that I think we would be satisfied with. Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas? 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 All right. Let's call him Tom. Aren't followers called Thomists? Thomists? The followers of Thomas Aquinas, they're called Thomists? All right. So I'm, I don't feel bad calling him Tom. John Calvin. And if he said it, it has to be true. Martin Luther. <laughs> All right. The objection that inerrancy is based on non-existent originals. I'm actually very sympathetic with this objection. And, and, and if somebody levels it, I'm okay. All right. You have a point. You're making a point. All right. Um, because I think we should all be honest to say if, if we're talking about copies, well, we don't allege that copies are inerrant. We're only affirming that the autographs are inerrant. But then we also turn around and say, oh, by the way, we don't possess any of the autographs. And so, oh, okay. It's like, so I'm, I'm proving something with something I can't demonstrate, I can't prove. But now here's the key. The non-existent autographs, we may not have the literal parchment with the literal ink, but we can reconstruct the original autographs, and we do so consistently. This is the whole function of text criticism, that when we put together a critical text, we are reconfiguring the God-breathed, inspired, inerrant, infallible, original autographs. Reconstructing them to the 99.9% accuracy that, that nothing else from the ancient world can even approach. And so, um, while in theory their objection is, uh, is, is valid, but ultimately it's not, it's unfounded, because while we do not possess the original um, text, we do possess in well-preserved copies. It's the manuscripts we do not have. We do have the original text. Are we clear on that? We may not have the manuscripts, but we do have the text. There's no question that we have the text. And this is where I think um, uh, Daryl Metzger, or I see Metzger was one, I think. Um, Dan Wallace, I saw, saw a YouTube video of his the other day. Marvelous stuff. Because he, he highlights the... Um, the Greek New Testament, and he highlights the apparatus that has all the various variant readings. And he said, now here's, the, here's the, the top level text. Here's the potential alternate texts. The autograph is one of these. Okay? The autograph is either in the New Testament or in the apparatus. That there is not any potentiality for the autograph to be neither the, uh, the, the text or the apparatus. You know what I'm saying? So it's one of those. And if we can dispute, we can debate, we can argue the pros and cons of whether we like the variant reading better than the text reading. 
But one of those was in the autograph, and that's what we are restoring. That's what conservative text critics are restoring. Sadly, I found out there's text critics out there that are not interested in restoring the autographs. They're actually interested in tracking the, um, tracking the progress that led to the Byzantine dominance. And so they want to perform their text criticism to create the greatest Byzantine text that they can come up with. And, and to me, that's a, that's a fallacy and that's a, a bad approach. To, we should be working to restore the autographs. All right. There's also a difference between the text and the truth of the text. I like his example here. You have won $10 million, but the, the O in U has been replaced with the, the hashtag there, the number sign. You would have no problem understanding 100% of the message, even though the text is nearly 4% in error. And that error, I think it's great for him to use this, 4% in error, one character out of 26 characters, 4% in error, and does anybody have any doubt what the truth of that message is? Okay, It is without question. No one can dispute that we understand the message with a 4% error rate. How do you think we do with a New Testament with a 99.9%? accuracy on the on the autographs, right? So, he points out, you know, if the original USS Con U.S. Constitution were to be destroyed, or, you know, what happens if uh, national treasure was really true and they stole the Declaration of Independence, would we, would, we, would we lose the text of the Declaration of Independence or could we still recreate it? Obviously, we could recreate the original if the original manuscript was somehow lost. Same thing with the Bible. So we don't have the autograph manuscripts, but we do have the autograph text. And we can, uh, we can affirm that without apology. Here's another objection. Inerrancy is unnecessary. Who are the people that claim this? That's what I want to know. Um, I find that kind of silly, but okay. Here's a neat metaphor for you. All human beings are imperfect copies of Adam who was directly created by God. Nonetheless, as imperfect a copy as we may be, we are still 100% human. Adam was no more human than we are. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Inerrancy is an unfalsifiable view. And the folks that are really mad about that are curious to me. A lot of science types, a lot of folks, they want to falsify. If you can't falsify something, then you can't prove something, and, and so forth. But as Geisler points out, the principle of falsifiability itself, you could point your finger at that and say, is that falsifiable? Okay, so now we're back to, again, a self-defeating premise that, um, self-defeating premise. Um, and a difference between what is falsifiable in principle as far as what is falsifiable in fact. You can accept something in principle, but then if it's never falsifiable in fact, then that's not a problem either. So, um, yeah. Here you go. You want to you refute the Bible and its inerrancy? Well, then find an actual error in an existing but accurate copy of Scripture or find an original manuscript with an error in it. Okay? Um, or find the body of Jesus in a tomb somewhere. Okay? That might be the simpler thing. But if that was possible, don't you think they would have done that in the first century? You think the Sanhedrin would have had any problem parading the body of Jesus around if, in fact, they could, they could, have, they could find the body of Jesus? They'd have done it in a heartbeat. 
Oh, and there's Geisler making the point I just made. <laughs> Even more decisive. Find the body of Jesus. All right. The objection that inerrancy is not a fundamental doctrine. I hate this one, too. Um, I, but I've encountered it. People that want to say, well, let's not fight over the small points. Let's just make sure we're solid on the big points. All right, maybe. But I don't know that there's a bigger point than bibliology. Because if we compromise on the Bible itself, how do we deal with anything else? So, um, yeah. I, I say that the Bible is as fundamental as it gets. And if we don't die on this hill, then there's no other hill we can die on. As the basis of all other doctrines, the inerrancy of the Bible is a fundamental of the fundamentals. If a fundamental of the fundamentals is not fundamental, then what is fundamental? Fundamentally nothing. I think he had fun writing that paragraph. Probably more fun than I had reading it. So, yeah, I mean, it comes down to that. And, uh, yeah, for folks that say, well, I don't think it matters. Well, I do, and if you don't now, there's something wrong with you, but okay, I'll pray for you. <laughs> I pray that you come to a, a, a higher, better, more reverent view for the greatest blessing God could have possibly given to us, uh, besides saving us, is giving us the written canon of Scripture by which we have the sole authority for faith and practice. The objection that it should not be a test for orthodoxy. I don't know. To me, it is. It's a major doctrine. It is a test. If, you, if you're a liberal on this, then you're not an orthodox Christian. Okay? Am I, am I alone in that? No. No. I think we're either biblicists or we're not. It's not a test of salvation, of course. You can deny inerrancy and still be saved. But, I mean, there's born-again people with all kinds of bad doctrine. But, I tell you, salvation depends on believing certain soteriological truths such as the death and resurrection of Christ for our sins and not on accepting all fundamental doctrines. Okay, so here's why I do have to draw a red circle and say, hold on, hold on, hold on. Salvation is not dependent on believing certain soteriological truths per se, necessarily. Stop, okay? So, it's conceivable. I, I don't want people walking away with a bad idea of what is saving faith. The only object for saving faith is... Jesus Christ. Believe in the, on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Okay? It's not a fact about him. Okay? You can believe that he was born of a virgin. That doesn't save you. You can believe any fact about him. And I mean it. I mean any fact about him. And believing that fact doesn't save you. Hopefully you know enough facts and hopefully you believe enough facts so that with the totality of the good news presented to you, you will then be led by the Holy Spirit to believe in Jesus Christ. But the other salvific truths of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, I would submit to you that there's a lot of Mormons in this world that believe he died on the cross, and a lot of Mormons in this world that believe he rose from the dead. But are they born again? I know a lot of Roman Catholics that believe he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead. But their faith is not in Christ for eternal life. Their faith is in the Roman Church for eternal life. And the Mass and the Virgin Queen of Heaven. And, the, and they need, there's no salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church. And so you can have an understanding of the facts and still be trusting in the wrong object for your eternal life. And if you're trusting in the wrong object for your eternal life, how are you saved? 
I ask that question, how are you saved? Okay. Ruben, did you have a question on this or a follow-up? Okay. So when asked in regards to, to what, what what do you you know what do I need to believe that sort of thing I typically tell people you need to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now would you suggest me uh, that I should just say then just believe in the person and not the person and work of Jesus Christ? Exactly, and I, I did the same thing for years and years. I used the phrase "person and work of Jesus Christ," mm-hmm. "person and work," and just rolls off the tongue because we've heard it a thousand times. But when I'm reading John three sixteen, Acts sixteen thirty one, when I'm reading every text, it's Jesus Christ, not his work. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And so I was I challenged myself. I said, find a verse that includes the person and the work of Jesus Christ, where I have to believe about. And this is where believe in or believe that becomes significant. Mm -hmm. So I can believe that all over the place and never believe in. And so, um, yeah, I stopped using person and work a long time ago because I prefer to just lock it in on the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, I, I, I think I can say that's fair enough. Would you say that, uh, from a practical, practically speaking, um, maybe not theologically, but just practically speaking, is it fair to say that when you have an understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, whether you mention it or not, that would entail the works of Jesus Christ? Uh huh. Sure. Okay. Cool. Yeah, because you learn about Jesus in the Bible, and Jesus in the Bible dies on the cross and rises from the dead. Yes, sir. Sorry, this is kind of a follow-up question because there's been a lot of talk about salvation doctrine, and I've always believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh-huh. right, as a base of salvation. Can you can you describe that a little bit more? Like, what's the minimum saving doctrine to get saved? Uh, I'm trying not to make this too. Complicated. Volume three, sin and salvation. Okay. Volume three. We are going to spend weeks on this. Okay. And it, I'll let it, it is, go. It's and okay. it is a, it's a good question, and I love that question. This is the kind of thing that got Zane Hodges in trouble when he was writing his journal article and everybody attacked him for his crossless gospel, which he didn't have. Um, I love Zane. He's in glory now, and thankfully, all of his critics will answer for their... All of his critics are going to answer for what they said about him. But... Um, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, it did. It did. But, um, but, but see, so there is a place for this, okay? When you talk about minimum information or minimum gospel or minimum... So, there is a place for this. I think the good place for this is in seminaries. It's with journals. It's with uh, a, a scholarly discussion, okay? And I'm not saying it's because church members aren't entitled to it. What I'm saying is, is that if you can't examine it dispassionately, then when you throw it to an open audience, okay... Like if you write a book, The Crossless Gospel, and you start hanging it out so church ladies in the pew are reading this and go, oh, Zane Hodgins is a bad person, right? And, and you, you don't see the, the context for the theological discussion of what must this unbeliever know before he can place his faith in Jesus Christ, okay? Is there a minimum amount of information that if he doesn't know this, is it, when he trusts in Christ, is it somehow invalid? Is it invalidated because he believed in Christ, but he didn't know enough to really believe in Christ? Okay, And so that will come up in volume. I'm going to camp on that for weeks. I'm very passionate about that. Thank you. All right. All right. Objection that inerrancy is divisive. Yeah. It's always a one-sided thing. You're being divisive. No, you're being divisive. We're both being divisive. (laughs) 
I wouldn't be divisive if you disagreed with me. So who's, who's being divisive? Anyway, um, I think that's more of an emotional appeal. Um, and if we are, oh well. Okay, was Jesus divisive when he called him a brood of vipers? Okay. Um, anyway, uh, he's even if a doctrine were divisive by its, because it divides, it doesn't mean that... Uh, yeah, actually, it's the ones who deny it that would be the ones considered divisive. I thought he pointed that out pretty well. Um, taking a stand on a doctrine does not make it divisive and thereby wrong. It's better to be divided by truth than united by error. I say amen to that. Yeah, who made this up? In uh, essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. I mean, where did that come from? That's as old as I think Noah said that, getting off the ark or something. It's been around for a while. Objection to the term inerrancy. Well, fine. Maybe there's a better way to say it, but it's what we've been calling it for hundreds of years now. We'll probably not be able to change that. Contrary to fact. Now, if that's true, then we got a problem. We can't teach anything contrary to fact. If this, if this objection holds water, then we can close the book right now. Inerrancy is contrary to fact. Really? Convince me. Okay? If you convince me that it's contrary to fact, then I'll stop being a pastor tomorrow. Or today. We'll, we'll stop right now. All right. But here's what they claim. Inerrancy is contrary to fact. That there are demonstrable errors in the Bible. However, that view makes errors of its own. The fact is, no one has ever demonstrated that there is an error in the original text of the Bible. As we said earlier, not one. No, not one. We sang to him, no, not one. Okay? Is there, a, is there a mistake in our Bible? No, not one. All right. Now, some may claim, that's fine, we can work through it. When critics ask, uh, guys learn how there. There's good material available. But you're making some fundamental mistakes. Just because something's unexplained does not mean it's inexplicable or inexplainable. Okay? Presuming that the Bible guilty until proven innocent. You know? And some of these guys go kicking and screaming. They go, you've got to drag them to the evidence. And even then, they just grudgingly accept, well, uh, okay, maybe this time. You know, but, you know, it'd be amazing to me that we could have archaeological proof for every verse, every jot, every tittle in the Bible, and there would still be God-haters saying, well, that didn't happen. You can't prove to me that it happened. So, anyway. And they presume that the Bible is guilty until proven innocent. What's curious, too they will accept everything outside the Bible as gospel, no matter what. Well, look, the Epic of Gilgamesh says this. I don't care. And yet they think that this pagan text from, you know, who knows where and when and whatever, as if that's going to trump, all right, to me, okay, you just accepted the burden of proof on your side then. Convince me that the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh is God-breathed and inspired, that it's infallible, that it's inerrant, that it's inspired. And uh, if, if that's the case then uh, I'll agree that uh, maybe the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, destroys the, the Bible's credibility. But to me, it's the other way around. Okay? Because Jesus never validated the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh. Or First Enoch, or some of these other things. Confusing our fallible interpretations with God's infallible re revelation. There's the other 
item. Sometimes the biggest problems that people are pointing to as a problem is not a text problem, it's an interpretation problem. And with a better hermeneutic and with a clear exegesis and with, uh, with uh, more disciplined uh, homework, um, it goes away, it gets solved, the conundrum is over. Failing to understand the context of a passage, of course, like um, John Henson's coffee mug, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Okay? And it's, uh, yeah. Neglecting to interpret difficult passages in light of the clear ones. You asked about this. And so, are there problems? Yes, there's verses in the Bible that are befuddling. Okay? And we admit that. Baptism of the dead. Okay. That, that takes some work. And how about um, Jane, uh, um, Jim Myers? His favorite one, he quoted it when he was here. Uh, he quoted the, uh, the verse that mentions the parbar. Okay? And it comes from First Chronicles, and it's about a, it's probably a, uh, an extension of the temple, outer court, maybe on the western way. It's just, but there's something, and there's two posted at the parbar. And, and what's a parbar? Okay? Even the rabbis have to guess. Well, we think maybe it might be an antechamber. Maybe it might be a storage room. It might be a porch. It might be a portico. It might be a colonnade. It might be a... Um, it could actually... You know what? It's actually the ladies' room. Okay? It's a bathroom. Where do you think the priests go to the bathroom in the temple? They go to the par bar. Okay? I don't know what it is. But that actually is kind of my favorite understanding because why does the temple not have a bathroom? All right, we, we wouldn't build this church without a bathroom. Come on. Yeah, we use the parbar. Those that are baptized for the dead, or, or other passages, okay? And so what we're going to learn, we're going to learn to use the, the plain passages to interpret the unclear. We're going to use this simpler to explain the, the more complicated. We'll compare Scripture to Scripture and uh, deal with it from that. So stay tuned for hermeneutics. That's, that's going to come up in hermeneutics. Forgetting that the Bible is a human book with human characteristics. Yeah, don't lose track of that. Mistake number eight, assuming that a partial report is a false report. That's a big one, too, when you're comparing the, the synoptic Gospels. All right, so one, one Gospel writer says there's two angels. One Gospel writer says there's one angel. They're both correct. Because the one who said there was one didn't say there was only one, but it was the one that he wanted to emphasize in his text. Things like that. The different uh, inscriptions above Jesus' head. Uh, they gave dip divergent records of that. And, and I love it. I love the fact that the Synoptic Gospels do have fundamental distinctions, divergent details, things like that. Uh, that's a mark of authenticity more than anything else. And if they were clones of one another, that would be worse. That would be very problematic. And then they, would, they could probably allege that, well, there was collusion. They just copied and you can't trust them. Right. So, you know, you can't win for losing at that point. Demanding that New Testament citations of Old Testament always be exact quotations. Well, that just doesn't happen. Sorry. You know, well, why is that a problem for you? Sometimes they quoted from the Hebrew. Sometimes they quoted from the Greek. Sometimes they um, just gave a free paraphrase, just based off the top of their head memory, which is not always reliable. But that's where they were quoting from, and the Holy Spirit inspired it and said, okay, put that in the Bible. The Holy Spirit even inspired the author of Hebrews to say, well, it says somewhere, and without inspiring him to remember that, oh yeah, it was uh, Genesis chapter 2. 
Just somewhere it says. Okay. So, paraphrases, summaries, easy stuff. Assuming that divergent accounts are false ones. No, don't fall for that. Presuming that the Bible approves of all of it records. Just because the Bible records it happening isn't a sanction with approval. Like the words of Satan, he was a liar. David's adultery, all these things. Forgetting that the Bible uses non-technical everyday language. Is it scientifically precise? No. But I'm okay with sunrise and sunset and things like that. Not an issue. Round numbers, not an issue. But using different literary devices, yeah. Allegory, metaphor, simile, hyperbole. Satire, I love satire. Sarcasm, I'm fluent in sarcasm. Okay, so you find it in the scriptures and there you go. All of the Bible is literally true, but not all the Bible is true literally. That's kind of a cool statement. Mistake number 15, forgetting that only the original text, not every copy of scripture is without error. Again, we're back to the autographs again. Confusing general statements with universal ones. Yeah, here we go. Um, and a lot of times this happens with Proverbs. I think it's useful. When I grew up, I learned, I think this came from Colonel Theme, or, yeah, I think learning that you have doctrines, promises, and principles. And, and huge differences. And, and if you take a, a principle and you try to claim it as a doctrine, then you're going to have issues. Okay? Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. Are there exceptions to that principle? Yes. All kinds of... Because there's other principles as well that also compete, such as reaping and sowing and, and things that happen. So, uh, anyway, I, I think Proverbs, uh, the, the general statements, the principles of Scripture, describing how things normally function in most circumstances and ideal settings, um, as opposed to a doctrine that is in that is inviolable or a promise that has to be fulfilled. Uh, I think that's that's a good way to rightly divide the word of truth. Forgetting that later revelation supersedes previous revelation. You know, God is free. If He wanted to put Israel under dietary restrictions, and He was free to lift those restrictions for the church, He's free to do that. And and since I like bacon, I'm glad that He did that. It, to me, it's great. I can, I can have a bacon cheeseburger. Thank God. Okay. But now his, his freedom to make those later adjustments, and notice he didn't make those for Israel, but he made those for the church, but his later revelation is not the same as Islamic supersessionism, by the way. It's not the same as what the Quran does, because the Quran is hopelessly contradictory. But the, um, but the biblical pattern for uh, later revelation, uh, helping to clarify earlier revelation. See, we accept it on, on face value in those realms, and we don't go beyond that point. And for some reason, the liberals, they hate this, and I think they know better, but they like using it as their stick, right? Like, well, do you eat bacon? Sure. Oh, well, then you can't condemn homosexuality. Uh, wait a minute. Well, because Leviticus says you can't eat bacon, and Leviticus says if a male lies with a male as one lies with a female, then they shall be stoned. So, 
obviously, you don't believe in Leviticus, and so you should be more loving and more um, accepting of, of homosexuality. Okay? And if you've not encountered this yet, just be ready for it, because uh, I've encountered it 20 times, if not more. Okay? Do I even need an answer? We, I think we can all see through this. We can, we can understand why the dietary restrictions were modified. We have a text where Jesus clarifies the, the, and he had to get Peter over that hump. What God has declared clean, you know, you can eat it. And, and so we have a text that does that. Show me the text where God says, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with uh, abominations now. Uh, he never does, okay? And we have the New Testament. It's not just Leviticus. Is Leviticus the only place that condemns homosexual sin? No, of course not. And we got Romans and 1 Corinthians, and we got plenty of other passages beyond Leviticus that uh, you know, you've got Genesis, you've got all kinds of passages that uh, describe sin for what it is. Okay? You had a question? Yes. Um, I was thinking about what you're saying, and I had a question like this, and I was talking to um, a relative about this, where. Um, God, uh, well, Jesus, like, reaffirms, like, what, um, nine of the Ten Commandments, right? Mm-hmm. In, in Jesus' ministry. So, uh, uh, going back to a couple paragraphs above, talking about how God sometimes, uh, not overrides, what's a good word to say? Um, because dispensationally, right? I don't even like abrogates. I don't even like overrides. I don't even like, I mean, to me, it's a better understanding that the church is not Israel so that we recognize that we're not under the law, the Mosaic law. Right. Uh, even the Gentiles weren't under Mosaic law in the Old Testament. It was only Israel that was under Mosaic law. Now, right. nine of the ten points I can validate from the New Testament as far as the church is concerned. The only thing that we don't have is the Sabbath. The Sabbath, yeah. But in a sense, we do because we have all day, every day, as long as it's called today. Our Sabbath is, is a daily rest in the spiritual realm. Real quick, could Old Testament believers eat bacon? Gentiles. Like if they were Gentiles, like not Jewish believers, but right. Gentile believers could. Sure. Okay, cool. All right. Sure. That's all. Thank you. Okay. And uh, Ruben, that's a question. Uh-huh. Yeah, could you guys just sit next to each other? <laughs> no, Jesus. Uh, just a quick follow-up to, to what he was asking. In regards to uh, the terminology, I mean, Scripture uses the word the Christ fulfilled, right? Uh-huh. And so couldn't we just say it was fulfilled in him for us, you know? You can say fulfilled if there is a fulfillment value. Um, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. You have scriptures that address that. Um, but still, I think the fundamental things that set Israel apart from the, the Jews, I think they're still in effect and will resume their effectiveness after the rapture. And so they'll be back under dietary restrictions again. They'll be back under uh, you know mixed fabrics, polyester or whatever. They'll be, um, yeah. All right. I'm headed for page 513. We're only two pages away, so we're close. It's not even 4 o'clock yet. All right. So later revelation supersedes previous revelation. Understanding the unfolding nature of Scripture. Understanding the Hebrew canon and the Greek canon. Understanding the dispensational um, distinctions. Augustine, alleged errors in the Bible. If we are perplexed by any apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken. But either the manuscript is faulty, or the translation is wrong, or you have not understood. (laughs) I like it. Okay, I'm on board with that. 
Mistakes are not the revelation of God, but the misinterpretations of man. The Bible is without mistake. The critics are not. Mistake number 18, the allegation that grammatical irregularities are errors. Because, boy, howdy, you can find several of these. And, um, yeah, just because it's grammatically irregular does not assume that it's a divine error. Regular and irregular usages, but no real grammatical errors. Grammar as such does not deal with truth. It is only the form through which verbal truth is expressed. And this is kind of curious to me, too. The history of English is remarkable, and how uh, there was very little standardization of spelling until pretty recently, actually, in history. And it started to happen after uh, the American colonies were founded. And so then it started to happen separately as far as British usage and American usage. Uh, and, and some of that got locked in. I think a lot of that got locked in because of the American separation from, from Great Britain. And uh, so it's kind of curious to me now that we have these uh, two divergent uh, expressions of English and, uh, and why sometimes we joke that, you know, that the, the British people need to work harder on their English. The, um, the fact is, um, those dialects are becoming wider. And, and it's curious, when, does, when do divergent dialects actually just start calling themselves independent languages? You know, I don't think we're there yet, but it's curious as those things, as those things happen. All right, well, this is the conclusion then. I might have time, even time to tell my story. Um, the Bible, by many lines of evidence, contains all the earmarks of having divine origin, sanctity, divine authority, infallibility, indestructibility, indefatigability. I hate that word, it's hard to pronounce. Indefatigability, infeasibility, and inerrancy. It is the only book of its kind and is still the world's all-time bestseller. No question about that. It's a great conclusion to not only inspiration and inerrancy, but it's a great conclusion to the whole volume on, on bibliology. There's nothing like the Bible in, uh, in uh, human history. So, I don't like abrogate. So, I'll have to think about that. I mean, the word itself is fine, I guess. It's just the way the Muslims use it that I, I don't want to use a term that they use. So, uh, but I just think um, dispensational clarity is uh, is, a, is a better concept. That uh, it's like I don't follow the law any more than I, I, I build an ark and assemble animals, right? I, because I'm not Noahic. I'm not I'm not trying to I'm not preparing for a, a global flood. Uh, so you know, obeying Mosaic law would be about as stupid as, as building an ark and, and gathering animals. Um, the, the Mosaic stewardship is not mine, and the Noahic stewardship is not mine. And, and uh, I understand they, they served God in what they did when they did, and now I'm a church-age pastor-teacher. Uh-huh. Do you see everybody's got their apologetic? What are the Quran? Oh, can we get him on microphone, too? Oh, sorry. Thanks. Big giant five hundred dollar five syllable word. The Quran. They. How do they explain the? Oh, abrogation. No, use another big word. That for the Quran. How they explain their uh, inconsistencies or their contradictions. Oh, they have. They they absolutely used abrogation. So they took the later passages and said the earlier passages are are not valid. It's almost like a Democratic Party when they have testimony on the record and then they mm -hmm. say our prior testimony is no longer operable. This is now our new story. 
and they put that on the record. Well, both were given under oath. One of these is a lie. Who's going to jail? So it's the same thing with the Quran. They have so many contradictions. Right. right. They cannot be reconciled. And so they've come up with this doctrine of abrogation whereby they say the earlier surahs, you have the Mecca surahs and the Medina surahs, you have the, the, the flight that, that Muhammad supposedly made. And so the, the later surahs will supersede the earlier surahs, and they might as well not even exist because they are free to be ignored based upon the later ones. Which is amusing to me, not amusing, but it's interesting because... When they come out to tell you, oh, we're a religion of peace, and if, if you kill one man, it's like you've killed the whole world. They have all these things. Those surahs are the earlier ones that they will freely say are no longer operable anyway. And the later ones, that's how they conduct themselves. That's where jihad comes from and the other things there. So Anyway, we should have a class on Islam at some point. I don't know. We'll, we'll find somebody to teach that, and uh, it'll be a useful class. So I'm going to close with this. Uh, if you want to know the difference between the English dialects, um, my personal experience happened in Saudi Arabia where um, I was uh, serving with the 411th MP company and we were a, uh, a Fort Hood, Texas-based regular army MP company and we were dispatched to uh, Saudi Arabia for Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And while we were there, um, we uh, were co-located. We had a great headquarters. We had a marvelous place for, that we were set up for our, our headquarters. And um, it was so great that there were other MP units that wanted to co-locate with us, and they wanted to share our location. They offered to do some of our uh, work, you know, some of the latrine duty and some of the other things, and so they would share the chores, and they could share our place. Well, one of those was a British MP company, um, and they were, of course, British, and they spoke British English. And then the other group that joined us about a week after that were, uh, it was a National Guard MP company unit from uh, the Kentucky National Guard. And so the Kentucky National, yeah, don't laugh, the Kentucky National Guard, these guys were amazing. I've got to tell you, these guys showed up, and they, um, they, were, they were some carpenters, they were some builders. I don't know how they did it. They had wooden floors for their tents. They had walkways. They had shower houses. They just, within about two weeks of moving in, they built this little town. It's probably there to this day. The Bedouins, I'm sure, are still using it. Back to the languages, though. My point is, the... When the Kentucky guys showed up, the British MPs could not understand half of what they were saying. And then they were trying to talk to the British MPs, and the Kentucky guys, they couldn't understand two-thirds of what the Brits were saying. So we had a huge language barrier between the British MPs and the Kentucky National Guard. And so we got to provide the, the, the Texas MPs from Fort Hood, Texas. We were the interpreters. We got to be in between the British and the Kentucky National Guard. And, and this is the, the fun, I will never forget this, the funniest thing. You know, what did he say? What did he say? And then we'd be the go-betweens. Oh, here's what he said. Oh, here's what he said. And uh, anyway, I, that's a, a formative experience of my youth, and, uh, and I, will always, I will always treasure that. So, next week is Canonicity in Chapter 28, and then we will conclude the week after that with um, chapter 29, which is a summary, summary of the evidences for the Bible. So canonicity is next, important chapter, um, and there is much more to be done on it than uh, what even this chapter gets into, so stay tuned for that. And we may have some more 
expansions as well. Lord willing and rapture pending. Any final questions? Thoughts? Concerns? Complaints? Is it warm in here? It does seem warm in here. Okay. It was probably too cold and somebody bumped it up. That's all right. (laughs) Okay. All right. Fair enough. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for truth. We uh, thank you for these students and I thank you for their diligence in reading and comprehending. And, and I pray that we do. I pray that we remember this stuff for years to come and, and review it occasionally so we never get rusty. Father, we, we have to, uh, you may call upon us to defend the faith and, and, uh, and we need to give an answer. We need to give a, a, an account. And so, uh, Father, just thank you for this privilege. I, I uh, have no problem uh, defending the faith and it's, it's my honor to do so. It's easy to do so. Um, I, I just can't imagine taking the other side of any of these arguments, Father, and trying to argue against you, uh, your existence or against your words. So, Father, uh, happy to be uh, on, the, on the correct side of these discussions, and I uh, just thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.